Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 75, I speak with Aaron Miles, the co-founder of Eyelash Boutique that grew over 1,000% last financial year to do $1.3 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. We discuss why the heartbreak of not being able to join the Air Force due to a failed medical and not follow his family legacy took him nearly five years to fully recover from. How he went from entry-level and minimum wage odd jobs to door-to-door sales, phone sales and eventually joining his partner with her eyelash extension business. The roller coaster of making $40,000 in online sales in a month when it was more than he had made in a year and growing 10 times the following year to quickly become a seven-figure per year business. Why online education is here to stay and why RTOs are now approaching them and future international expansion opportunities. If you're looking to learn how to do eyelash extensions in 30 days and create a home-based lash business, check out eyelashboutique.com. That's I-S. L-A-S-H-B-O-U-T-I-Q-U-E.com. So I'm here with Aaron Miles, the co-founder of Eyelash Boutique. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thank you very much, Derek. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Eyelash Boutique? What did you study? What were some of your early uh, jobs or roles? Um, so directly before starting Eyelash Boutique, I was actually in IT recruitment, so working at Hayes. Had a number of different roles, didn't study at all straight after school, uh, but predominantly was in like sales. I did some door-to-door sales, um, did some insurance sales. And then before that, I was a little bit lost um, in jobs that I was doing. So I did like warehousing, tried landscaping, did some retail, um, just trying to pretty much find where where I would fit in. And I mean, like, so did you sort of leave high school and thought, I want to get into the workforce? Did you, how did you sort of um, make those sort of early roles? And they, those were the roles available or, or you wanted to like kind of have a bit of a gap here before you figure out what you wanted to do longer term? Yeah. So pretty much since grade four, all I ever wanted to do was join the Air Force. Like my dad's Air Force, grandfather's Air Force, one of my great uncles and everything like that. So growing up, all I heard was stories about people in the Air Force. I remember going to um, an air show in 2004 with my dad and that pretty much like sparked my my whole life journey. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to get there. And everything, every single thing I did throughout school was to become um, like a pilot or join the Air Force. I remember going in, in year 12, I went through like the whole process. Um, I had my date that I was supposed to be going to my basic training, um, but I just needed to get my vision checked because I couldn't read down all the letters on the on the chart. Um, and then I went to the optometrist and they pretty much classed me um, class four medically unfit because I can't actually see properly out of my left eye. Um, so that that really threw my life off tangent because my whole goal pretty much from a young age was to join the Air Force, become a pilot, and that's all I ever wanted to do. And then when I got to a point when I was expecting it to happen, it just wasn't – it wasn't like I wasn't fulfilling it because of like things that I couldn't control. So it just threw everything off tangent. So I pretty much just tried to pick up any job that I possibly could um, just to find where I would fit in next um, and find like what – what I'm actually going to do if it's not going to be the Air Force. So it was just like a whole new rediscovering phase and just testing different things. 
And did you have any inkling? Because I think, yeah, you have to have 20-20 vision. You're not allowed to be colorblind. Like, you actually need almost, like, perfect. Like, it's very yeah. rare that people have good enough eyesight to be in the Air Force or in a, yeah. in a pilot, commercial pilot environment. Did you have any sense or any self-doubt or you just had never even thought of that? You are physically fit. You didn't <laughs> the- think the eyesight would be what stopped you. I, I honestly, I knew my eyesight wasn't perfect. And the funny thing is, this is what I did in my um, my test. So we went, we had to read the chart on the test, read it perfectly with my right eye. My right eye is like beyond 2020. Anytime I go to an optometrist, they're like, wow, you can read that far down the chart. I was like, yeah, I can even read that um, A4 piece of paper over there. And they're like, wow, I knew it was going to happen. So pretty much what I did was I was sitting there covering my eye and I was peeking through a small gap in my hand. And like through the small gap, I could read like first three lines, four lines. I guessed it. And they were like, okay, your vision's almost perfect. If you can get it slightly corrected, like, look, you're not going to be able to become a pilot, but if you can get it slightly corrected, these are the sort of jobs you'll be able to go for. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll go to the optometrist. And I was like practicing what I would do. And I remember getting there, but they actually sit you on the machine and cover it completely. And I was like, (laughs) that's not good at all. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much where they're like, yeah, you can only read pretty much the first line. There's no way that you're going to be able to get in any role. And how did you, how long did it take you to, I guess, sort of accept that? Like, obviously, you realized you needed another job. You took some retail, entry-level jobs. But was that something you ever thought, is there another pathway into armed forces, another similar sort of way? Or did you really, you know, you were able to accept it fairly quickly despite it being a long-held dream? I think it took me a long time to accept it. Like I think for a good five years, I would say after that, it's just exploring things. And like I remember going into to jobs like retail or like um, kitchen hand and things like that. And I was like, man, these jobs, that's not like what I can envision myself doing because I always saw myself as like a, a physical person, someone that's like doing something different every single day. Um, and like it just wasn't fulfilling. And it took me a long time to actually get over it. I remember... I remember the day finding out as well. It actually took, a, I think, a very big toll on my dad as well because, like, our whole family was Air Force and he was so proud of me, like, pretty much carrying the family name through the next step of Defence Force. And when we got to that point, I remember we both, like, sat there and just, like, shared tears together. Like, it was, it was very tough. And then, like, trying to figure out where I was going to go was difficult as well because I knew after leaving high school, like, I did did relatively hard subjects and I knew after leaving high school, there was no way that I wanted to study any further. Um, So that pretty much ruled all of that out. And then it was just like guessing from there. Um, Yeah. Like I said, just trying all different things. Um, Yeah. It was a very difficult time. And, when you're in these different jobs, again, there's a bit of, you know, it's not exactly what you wanted. Your family's frustrated. You're frustrated. Did you have uh, a sense of, oh, I'm really good at, yeah, sales or dealing with people or, um, you know, working in a sort of a food environment? Did you have any sense of your, your other strengths in a sort of more civilian world or were you just sort of, again, doing whatever was there but you didn't really have a clear view? Yeah, I didn't really have a clear view whatsoever. Um, I remember doing like... I worked at Sizzlers for a bit and I wasn't terrible at it. Like I could smash out the work pretty easily, but it was just like boring, (laughs) just like cooking things was completely boring for me. And I was like, there's no way in the world I'm going to stay here cooking for someone for the rest of my life. So I was like, that's it for me. Moved on to warehousing. I was like, okay, let's try something physical. We'll go warehousing. It was unloading boxes all day. And like it, it got me in a good shape and I was like probably in the best shape of my life. But like, again, just lifting boxes all days and moving them was just like, um it was 
straining and and I, I couldn't envision myself working in a warehouse and just doing physical work for the rest of my life and then I found sales and I remember I went into door-to-door sales and I sucked at it too I was probably the worst door-to-door salesperson ever because I did not know how to communicate with anyone like worst communicator you probably ever see I went and knocked on people's doors but the thing with that for me was that like it was actually a challenge it was something that was hard for me and I didn't know how to do so I just stuck with it and I remember for I think it was like six months I was in in door-to-door sales and we were doing like um, charity um, things. So it, was, it, was, it was relatively difficult to sell because pretty much anyone sees you walk up to the door, they're like, no, nah, no thanks, slam the door in your face. And I was like, okay, that hurt. And then I started learning like it's a numbers game um, and you just got to keep knocking. And every door I knocked on, I realized that I was getting better and better at communicating. Um, and then like trying to figure out how to sell to different types of people, understanding like different uh, personalities, um, what clicks with certain people, what doesn't click with certain people, how to deal with people that are very dominant as well. And like that, like I found quite a big interest in that. I think it was more so like the psychology side of things as well. And it was a challenge. And I feel like that's what made me sort of stick into sales. Um, and then I went from that into like phone sales. Phone sales was very high volume. And again, it taught me a different side of communication again, because there's no body language whatsoever, it's just tone of voice what you're saying, how you say it, and then converting people that way. So I felt like like there was times where I didn't love sales whatsoever, but I was like, I'm actually learning something. Like this is something that I completely suck at, but if I just stick with it, I know it's going to be something that I can like hold on to. And what was the difference? So like you're in a kitchen working in a, a restaurant, you say, I can't see myself doing this long term. You're in a warehouse saying, I can't see myself doing this long term. After a week of, I'm um, presuming commission only, door-to-door sales, <laughs> why did you not say, well, I can't see myself doing this also for years? Um, what made you, because I think most people give up in the first week of commission mm. only, door-to-door sales, very high turnover sort of um, role. So what made you, instead of saying, well, if I can't do it for 20 years, why do it for two months? What made you persevere at that? I think um, that's actually a really good question. I never actually thought about that. I think it might have been that I saw that there was opportunity for more off the back of the skill, whereas with like landscaping or physical labor, it was was sort of like you learn the skill and you're stuck at that level. You could potentially go into opening your own business. But at that time, I didn't even like think too much about having uh, a a huge business. It was more so like, what am I going to go do now and where's this going to take me? And I think that for me is what made me stick into it because I knew like if I learn um, door-to-door sales, um, I could go into real estate. If I learn real estate, I can go into something else. And that's how I sort of saw it. It's like a stepping stone. Um, and I felt like it was more skilled that I could transition to bigger and better roles to create more sort of income. And you mentioned that learning side and like you said, an upskilling pathway. Was that something that your employer at the time, like they provided training materials or is it just something you sought out on your own to, to stick at it and improve at your communication? Yeah, they did um, morning trainings every day. So they did. So that was one of the really good things about the door-to-door sales. They were very big on teaching people how to do sales. Like door-to-door sales is very tough, but they actually put in that effort to make you actually understand what the processes are, how to sell to different people. And that's where I gained a lot of the knowledge. Like I, I was really bad at it and I probably didn't make as much money as a normal person would doing potentially like 50, 60 hours a week knocking on doors. But it was the knowledge that I was getting from it for free uh, from people that are making like millions of dollars in sales. Um, that was that was like probably a key thing that made me stick into it. And I remember like the day that I left as well, uh, one of the things that the owner said to me was like, you're 
very persistent. Like most people like that can't do sales like you, they would give up within like two or three weeks. Uh, but you, you just stuck in it. We don't know why you stuck it. We don't actually know why you stuck with it, but you're very persistent and that will, that will take you a long way. So, so it was almost a, a backhanded compliment because if you're making five thousand dollars a week, it's easy to say, "Well, obviously, you, you know, you're yeah. doing well." Of course, so why would you stop? But when you're not doing well, but to persevere again yeah. when you're not being compensated is, is very, and you're not on salary is sort of very different. Was, was there something that you remember that was a bit of a shift in your communication? You mentioned like obviously it wasn't your natural strength communication. You've been trained a lot. You're learning a lot. Was there something you realized oh, I'm doing something wrong or I never thought of this? And then when you changed it, that sort of helped or was that more once you got on the phone sales that, that it really started to make sense? Um, I, I feel like I developed a lot of actual like core foundations of communication. I was, I was very introverted all pretty much through my whole life and through high school and things like that. But that put me very outside of my comfort zone. Like knocking on someone's door and standing there waiting for them to open it up is a very like anxiety-driven um, experience. And I feel like unless you're in that particular position, you don't actually understand um, like where that's going to go. And I feel like that experience on its own um, and being put in that particular situation helped me like tenfold um, what if I could have achieved just in a normal day-to-day life. I could have gone up and tried to introduce myself to as many people as I could, but in that in the short amount of times, in that six months that I did sales, it it just exposed me to so much. And I felt like um like the amount I I increased my communication in that short amount of time was in, insane. Yeah, so it makes a sort of pressure and volume and, you know, adrenaline, I suppose, really yeah. sort of fast-tracked it. And, and then your early phone sales role, was that in recruitment or was that, again, a different sort of type of product and then you went into the IT recruitment side? Um, so that was insurance sales. So it was like with Ray White and Loan Market. So I was doing like insurance sales with them, um, pretty much for like house insurance, car insurance, um, pretty much any insurance products. That was probably like where I I realized like, sales could be a big thing um and i remember like getting into that role like i was there for four years four years doing insurance sales and from the day that i started i remember every day i would tell myself i'm going to be the best salesperson. i'm going to be the best salesperson. i'll keep driving towards that like learning different things and then eventually i broke the sales record i think i'm pretty sure i still hold the sales record um for ray white loan market insurance sales and what did you do different to everyone else? That like you had the motivation, you had the goal, but then in the sort of day to day behavior, which is what it all starts with. What was sort of some of your behaviors that were different? You do you think if you looked around at what your peers were doing? Um, mindset and volume. Those were the two big things. I knew like from the start, like I wasn't the best salesperson, but I knew if I got on the phones, it just called as many people as I could, and if I increased those numbers, then my sales would just follow. Um, and that's sort of what I did. And then I learned like other things to increase my conversion rates and things like that, like assumptive closes or like um, asking extra questions um, to make the process easier for the person that I'm communicating with. So it's just like little things that I started tweaking over time. And, and then when I put it all together, at like pretty much nearing the end, um, it, it just worked. Yeah, it's, it's became like a natural thing for me. And um Sales, in a sense, is somewhat entrepreneurial. You're generating revenue, dealing with customers, um, earning uh, upside sort of compensation on commission and things like that. But at this point, had you done any side business, any interest in business or no, you were just, like you said, finding your feet a bit, improving or at this stage, you still really didn't have starting a business on your, your mind? 
Yeah, I had um, a few small businesses growing up like I did. So it wasn't necessarily my own business, but in grade four or five, I used to do like mailbox drops. Um, so like we pretty much take the paper, it's up our responsibility and we have to go deliver it through our own run. So did that at around grade four, grade five. I also did mowing. Um, I did mowing from about grade seven, maybe through to grade 10. So about a good time of three years. Uh, so me and my neighbor, we both did that together. And then after high school, like when I was going through that time where I was a little bit lost, we actually set up a small business, my brother and a few friends where we were DJing at parties as well. So we'd get hired for like birthday parties. We get hired for weddings, um, formals, everything like that. Like wasn't a huge business, but we we're making some sort of income from it. And we were more, more like what we saw as payment was like free entry to these events and like free drinks, free food, and like a little bit of cash on the side that we could have some fun with. Yeah, and, and so you're in these phone sales roles, you're finding your feet, you're doing really well, setting records, um, again, building a bit more, I guess you could say, a career path. Was there a moment that made you want to start your own, like, again, you've had these little side businesses growing up, but like um, really to launch Eyelash Boutique, was there a particular moment that you remember where you made that decision and um, and what was it like once you made that decision? Um, I feel like in the early businesses, like with the the DJ party business, there was, there was times where I felt like I did want to scale it, but I was so afraid of committing to a business and like committing like all my energy into something. And that was probably a big issue that I had throughout um, like that whole discovery phase. What what actually made us like take Eyelash Boutique online where the business actually kicked off was uh, we had a, like a huge event happen in our life and we were pretty much forced to. It was like either this works or we're going homeless and that was pretty much it and that was a big push that like we started it out of fear like Irish Boutique Online was started out of fear and that big push is probably what led me into more the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial side of things and that's probably the only reason why it's actually been successful um, if it wasn't for that that event I probably would never have gone into business to be fair because I had so much fear about it but there was a bigger a lot of fear uh, that made me do it. And then it was like, okay, it worked. <laughs> I had the skills to do it already. I should have done this years ago. And I mean, was that on top of your, your day job? And, um, or, or was it again, you, you, the, some of the anxiety was around your day job and that's where you put more sort of energy into an alternate sort of, um, you know, opportunity and income stream? Yeah. Um, I was at Hayes at the time, Hayes IT. And like the point where we decided to take Eilish Boutique online, I just quit my job as well. And I was like, okay, we have no income now. Um, this is what Indy has. Like Indy has a foundation of her small hobby lash business. What can we build on top of this to make it better? Um, then we started incorporating like education. Uh, we did like classroom courses in the first month, um, sold those out pretty much straight away. Then we decided to take it online. Um Sorry, I don't remember where I was going with that. No, that's okay. So, so it was a product business and you're getting some customers and then you thought, well, how can we add a service component? And that's yeah. where the, the training um, of Lash Technicians sort of came in? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So we had a lot. We had a few people reaching out to Indy wanting to know how she did particular sets. So she was very well known in the area for being able to do eyelash extensions in under one hour. So she completes sets in like 45 minutes, which at the time was unheard of. No one had ever really done it. Most people were going to other people in the area and doing like three hours, but she was able to smash it. So people would come approaching her and being like, um, can you teach me how you do that? Like, I'd like to start my own at home business. How do you do sets in one hour? And she was like, okay, 
um, let's just do an education course. So we just pretty much threw something together. She took on two clients or two students to start with and then started teaching them. And then it was like, okay, this really works. Let's let's try another date. Then she took on another two students and it sold out. And then we opened up more dates. We're like, okay, there's a lot of interest on this. What happens if we take it online and then we do nationwide? And then we took it online. And I think in our first month, we did like $40,000 online, uh, which was insane to us because that was like, nearly my full year income and I was like holy damn like there's so much money out there it's just like finding it and that's it and I mean online education is obviously not new but a lot of physical things are still taught like you know trades mm. and beauty services still taught in person because it's, yep. it's a hand-on hands-on just like being a mechanic but what was that like was it again that the customers were willing and obviously it, you remove the barriers of travel or was it hard teaching people online versus in person? Yeah, I think we were, we were probably very fortunate and like when we started it because it was just after COVID-19. Like this was the back end of 2020 when we started and I think with COVID happening, more people were inclined to actually being open to the idea of doing online education because we, we the world had shifted so much. And like when it came to lashes, we we pretty much told them like it's going to be the same sort of Thing that you would experience in a class. Uh, we have all the videos that show you how to do it. You can watch it back as many times as you want. Whereas in a classroom, you're going to go to see it once. And then it was like, on top of that, you also get support that comes with it. So if you need extra help, we can jump on a Zoom call. And everyone was like, oh yeah, we do Zoom calls every day anyways. So that was like a no brainer for most people and it just worked. Yeah, so everyone had sort of had from March to September training them on how to use Zoom in their, <laughs> their work or their family or their friends yeah. already. Um, across a lot of Australia. Um, and, and again, you mentioned you did 40,000 first year and you've rapidly grown to 1.31 million, so over sort of 1,000% growth, sort of 10Xing or more yeah. than 10Xing very, very quickly, uh, which again is exciting but also terrifying, I imagine, in some ways <laughs> as the complexity and, and scope and, um, you know, um, all, all that sort of happens so quickly. So what was it like, that sort of rapid growth, both the good and the bad? Daunting, to be honest, um, because like I said, previous to all of that, I had no business experience no real business experience whatsoever and i remember like going into it and i was like okay we've made this much money how much do we put aside for taxes how much taxes do i actually need to pay what's our structure going to be like and then didn't know how to do marketing i didn't understand anything about facebook ads google ads like when we kicked off and i pretty much just jumped on google and youtube and i was just binge watching everything um and i think that's that's probably a big thing when persistence came in was like if I want to learn something, I'm just going to watch absolutely every video I can until I understand it um, to a, a, a depth where I can make it work. And then it's just testing it. Um, so that's pretty much what I did. And I remember we, we made a lot of big mistakes. Like looking back at it, it probably would have been better if we grew the business slower because we would have had less big mistakes. Um, like some of the mistakes that we've made, we were still paying for a year, two years down the line. Um, like what's an uh, example that sort of sticks out in your mind? Uh, the business structure itself. So we we kicked off the business as a sole trader and we went to like local um, accountants and things like that. And they just suggested structures on how we should do the business. Um, but they weren't familiar with online businesses and they didn't understand how we were getting all our revenue. And I remember showing them our numbers and they were confused. And they're like, well, you're an at-home lash business, aren't you? And I was like, no, but we do this as well. And they're like, yeah, but how does that work? And I was like, oh, we use Shopify and then 
people pay us money there and then it goes into our account and like explaining that whole process for them and then them guessing what sort of structure we should have had. So I didn't understand anything about account. I thought all accountants were the same and all accountants understood how a business works, but they're there's a big difference between accountants that are like old school brick and mortar, understand how a brick and mortar business works versus an accountant that understands e-commerce. And for me, walking into that blind with no knowledge whatsoever, I was like, yep, you're an accountant. You can help me. What structure should I have? And they set us up completely wrong structure, underpaid our bass, underpaid some of our taxes and things like that. And then changing our structure like three or four times before we found an accountant that actually knew what they were doing. Um, and it, it's something like that that yeah, many business owners never think about until they're years <laughs> in or until the tax debt sort of catch up with you, right? Um, yeah, exactly. And, and what about, like you said, you learn a lot about communication, but often people struggle to make the transition from in-person direct selling, phone-based selling, you know, one-to-one selling to sort of marketing, you know, one-to-many, where again, I imagine you weren't individually speaking to every single customer. It was more a self-sign-up or a self-serve sort of offering. What was yeah. that like adjusting from, again, direct one-to-one sales conversations versus sort of, again, marketing to a, a larger audience, one-to-many and online? Um, it was it was very different. Like I remember, I think the key thing that I always took from it is like I need to tell them why. And that's why, that's what like I always used to sell people on is like think of the questions they might ask and then give them um, an objection handle straight off the bat and then give them a reason why this is a good fit and i sort of just carried that through into marketing and then it just worked really well well i think the big thing that we did i don't know if, if you've read have you read alex mosey's book the 100 million dollar offer uh no but i've seen a lot of his content yeah, so there's, there's a good thing that he does in there. He talks about like value stacking and creating like unique offers. And that's sort of something that we did straight off the bat without knowing. So one of the things I asked Indy was like, when you did your lash course, was there anything in it that you felt like was missing? And then she was like, oh, um, I remember like when I started, I didn't have like a beauty bed, a ring light, things like that. And I had to tell my mom and my sisters when I'm practicing, lay on the bed and use the bed light. Uh, the bedside lamp and I was like okay is there a way that we can add the beauty bed and ring light into the course so everything's bundled together they get the course they get all the products they need and they can just pretty much hit the ground running and then we found out okay we could purchase beauty beds ring lights cheap for these particular places and we could send them all out together so that's what we did and that was probably like the key thing that made the, the like the product work was we just found a big gap in the market no one was doing it and then we were like okay we'll just put this together um and then offer it as a bundle and everyone loved it. And were a lot of the customers just looking to, you know, like they're not professional um, beauty technicians, they're just looking for their own to do it themselves and their friends or or were a lot of the customers people running a, a hair, nail, sort of lash beauty business and they were, you know, this was sort of professional development for them to, to improve their business? Yeah, it was all people with no experience. So the way that we positioned it was for people with no experience and for people that wanted to create something from home. That's still the way that we position our courses as well. Because I think previously, a lot of beauty courses and things like that were more designed for people to like seek employment as like a stepping stone. Whereas what we did was just change the angle of that and say like, this is what we did. Um, we set up a business from home as a, as a little hobby. Um, you can do the same. Um, and then we give you everything that you need to be able to do it, plus the knowledge on how to set up the business. So I guess that was part of the gap in the market. Like maybe there's some self-serve tutorials for free online if people just want to know how to do it themselves. Or there's, like you said, TAFE on maybe how to get an apprenticeship and how to kind of get a job, but there wasn't really a market for how to learn and then run it as a business. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. 
And that's, that's the different angle that we took. We more so saw it as like an opportunity to create a business from home. And I think, again, the timing after COVID, like when everyone left businesses and people were seeking other opportunities or ways to create income because they were frustrated with hours being cut back and whatever else and just uncertainty, they were like, okay, we want to do something for ourselves as well. But we saw that as a, an opportunity. Um, the fact that online education was up upcoming as well off the back of COVID also. Um, and then we just drove that messaging hard. And is there anything else you would do different? You mentioned the structure is something, it's uh, you know, important thing that people overlook. Were there other sort of things despite the rapid growth, but the things you look back and if you knew what you knew now for the, the business, you would sort of change or, you know, um, do uh, in a better way? Probably people, to be fair. Like if I was to go back now, I would um, – like I understand a little bit more about hiring, but at the start we we were too scared to hire people, and I think that was a big thing that really stopped us. Also, like we were too scared to to bring people on because we didn't know how to, we didn't know how to manage people correctly, um, and everything along those lines. Um, so I feel like in the early days, if we had of like outsourced a lot of it, because pretty much what we were doing, we we're doing all the marketing, we we're doing the sales, Andy was doing the courses, we we're also packing all the orders and like doing everything. Um, and that became very hard for us and we couldn't focus on areas of the business that actually needed us to focus on, like scaling it further potentially, uh, focusing on like back-end revenue and things like that. So I think staffing was also a big one. Um, the other thing that we probably had a lot of issues with was marketing. So my my marketing knowledge was very limited. Like I'd learned everything from Google, learned everything from watching YouTube. And then I remember... Six months into the business, iOS 14 happened. Um, and like, I pretty much just like, I got so scared because I was like, I don't know anything about marketing. I probably doubted myself too much. And then we took on a marketing team that really like, um, like they sold us the dream. They sold us that we, they were going to be able to help us. And I think that a lot of the times when marketing teams do that, they oversell what they're able to achieve um, and then don't give you necessarily what you're looking for. And I think that put us in a place where we just plateaued for a good space of 12 months because again i didn't understand it enough i didn't understand what i was stepping into what i should have expected from them and like how to control that properly um so i felt so out of control for a good space of 12 months um and then yeah like we 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 plateaued but i just took it as an opportunity to take a step back and just focus on things in the business where i felt like we needed to to fix and yeah, so another key component is like you said, picking good advice and good service providers. Mm-hmm. You know, you pick the wrong accountant, you pick the wrong marketing agency, <laughs> you may maybe pick the wrong recruiter or you know other sort of um, third party sort of providers or advisors. What yeah. have you learned about how to filter when you're not a marketing expert? That's why you're going to marketing expert. You're not a tax accountant. That's why you're going to an accountant. Um, but how did you build that sort of skill through um, you know, a bit of trial and error of how to pick a good expert in an area where you're not the expert? I think um, asking good questions is probably a big one. Like when I, when I first made these mistakes, I just took a lot of what they said at face value. Um, and that was like a huge mistake. Like I know from my previous sales experience, you should ask a lot more questions, but because I didn't have much idea, I just believed everything a lot of them were saying. And like, took the proof that they had on their websites and proof that they were able to provide me as like, okay, this is solid. Um, whereas I should have asked more questions, asked what their knowledge is in specific things that are relating to our business. Um, that probably would have given us a better foot forward. Um, so I think that's probably the key thing, like actually doing my own due diligence 
um, asking from other people that are working with them currently because obviously everyone likes to share who they're working with. So asking people that might be relevant that they're working with and then just like um, expanding my own knowledge as well. Like trusting that they were a professional was probably a big mistake of my own. I should have done my own research and understood what the subject matter was before I actually decided to make a hiring decision or partnering partnering with someone else. So those are probably like key things that I learned from it. Yeah, so sort of knowing enough to, again, not get lost in the basic conversations, to go deeper yeah. and then also client references and testimonials and portfolios, an example, like the accountant, if you had to ask, well, how many similar businesses, can we speak to them? And then if you found none of their businesses were e-commerce or digital, yeah. you, know, you might have realized some of the gaps. Yeah, exactly um, right. And so what do you see, again, the education sort of changed very dramatically when all the schools went online, the universities went online, everything sort of went online for a period of time in COVID. Um, now it sort of feels like I, I think a lot of universities are still partially online, but a lot of back in person, almost all, I think, primary and secondary sort of schools are, are in person. Um, what have you seen that sort of initial change, but then now moving forward where there aren't as many restrictions in place, has that changed your sort of business model around education or is it, again, people still like and understand that the value of um, self-paced sort of online education? I think um, it's still very valued. Like we still drive most of our revenue through online education. And I think the key thing for that is like a lot of people, I guess like me, a lot of people dream of doing something else but they're scared to make a huge commitment into like university or something like that so for them to have an opportunity where they can do things online uh, part-time self-paced things like that it gives them an opportunity to chase something that they really want without having a huge risk of dropping what they currently have and i think that's probably the key thing with online education i feel like it's going to stick around like there's no way in the world that online education will disappear from here on out and i think it's just like a different customer base. Um, like there's still going to be a, a large majority of people that love to do um, classroom courses, but there is still people that want want their dream career or want a business from home that need online education. Yeah, and, and uh, like you said, it's very different as well. I imagine adult education because people are juggling family responsibilities, work responsibilities, whereas if you're 10 and you're in primary school, like you haven't really got much else going <laughs> on, right? So it doesn't matter if you're in one place all day. Whereas yeah, if you're exactly. 25 or 35, 45, you're changing careers, you don't want to quit your job and full-time study in person necessarily, even for six months. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I think that's a key thing as well. Like it gives people so much flexibility um, and like it's, easily accessible like if someone is in a, a rural place where they might not have access to that type of education they now do by having access to internet um, and access to online training and platforms and things like that so accessibility is probably another big one as well is there an in-person component to your business whether it's like meetups or client activation events or you know sort of a, a premium sort of in-person offering or is it 100 percent remote from an education and product delivery sort of point of view if it's online, it's completely remote. Uh, there's no like in-person aspect to our online training. Um, we do offer like classroom courses as well. But again, the the scalability on the online or classroom course compared to online is very different because you're limited to like dates. You're also limited to space um, and things like that, whereas online is more scalable. Um, yeah, and having no in-person or face-to-face um, makes it easier for a lot of people as well. So having to commit to going to a classroom 
what we found anyway is that it actually deters people that want to do online education. Yeah, so it's another unserved market of people who aren't studying, not because they don't want to, but because there's not a delivery mechanism that's accessible to them unless it's, like you said, online. Yeah, exactly right. And so you're talking to all these people who want to start business, they're interested in business. I'm sure you're talking to other business owners as well. What trends do you see in sort of entrepreneurship within Australia? Where do you see, you know, both small business owners, aspiring business owners um, doing really well or or getting right? And where do you see um, opportunities that maybe they're missing? I feel like the trend for or the trend to become an entrepreneur has definitely picked up since COVID as well. Like I feel like even seeing what, my siblings watch on TikTok, Instagram, everything like that. People are always boasting about the next thing that they're doing, boasting about being an entrepreneur or ways that they're making money without actually working for someone else. So I feel like it's... And like the other thing as well is the other day when we went and signed my daughter up to prep, I was reading through like their yearbooks and all the different jobs that people want to do compared to what they were doing 20 odd years ago um, is completely different. Like kids are wanting to be YouTubers now instead of becoming truck drivers or they're wanting to be um, an online entrepreneur instead of being uh, a nurse or something like that. There's more of that in the younger generation as well. And I feel like it's more accepted across people. So the trend for people to become a business owner, I think is definitely picking up. Um, I think it's just just how they're nurtured into that. That's still old school. Um, another good example is my sister said she wanted to become a cleaner, but when she went and approached her school about it, they were like, that's a bad idea. So I feel like the younger generation really wants it, but there's still a clash with how education systems are currently run because it's still old school. Um, So I I think that's what I see happening is that there's going to be more people that want to do it. It's just going to be the transition from the older school education system to accept that more. Yeah, I imagine there's also a bit of a clash in sort of perceived status, you know, for a 20-year-old, if they're a self-employed YouTuber making, you know, a full-time <laughs> income, to them, that'd be very high status amongst their friends. Yeah. I'm self-employed, yeah. I travel, I do brand deals, I've got merch. I'm, it's very high status. But to their six-year-old parents, they probably think they're kids unemployed because they never leave the house, <laughs> right? So, so in their mind, it's a low-status job or yeah. like maybe running a, a certain types of businesses. They think it's sort of low status. Whereas the other person says, no, actually, I'm running my own business at 20 and it's, you know, it's a high status and, and a high autonomy sort of role. Whereas, again, previous generations looking at, at younger people today might say, well, it's lower status because you're not in an accredited profession like a yeah. lawyer, or a doctor, engineer, accountant. You're, you know, sitting at home all day on your laptop, not realizing that, um, you know, it's a different world and, and the perception is quite different depending on your age. Yeah, 100%. I think even still having that conversation with my dad, like he sort of understands where our business is at, what we do. But to him, the business is still a small business because we just have like one shop front. Because we don't have like multiple shop fronts, there isn't multiple brick and mortar things, there isn't multiple staff members. To him, it's still on a small scale um, because he doesn't fully understand that like there is an opportunity online or there is money to be made without having physical locations or staff members and things like that. Yeah, so you might have higher margins and net profit than a 10-location business, which are often unprofitable, or a, a you know 100-employee business that's sort of break-even or worse. But again, you're right, from a scale and a perception and a status point of view, he thinks, oh, well, it's, it's very small. It's <laughs> not many staff, not many locations because it's yeah. different. Whereas you would say, look how big our social following is, look how big our email list is, look at our revenue, but, yeah. but that's sort of all invisible for, from, the again, a previous sort of generation looking at it. 
Yeah, exactly right. Like he doesn't see it as like a, a dollar thing. He just sees it as a size thing instead. Yeah, and, and like you said, so depending on what metrics you're looking at, right? Like number of staff, whereas you can have you know one person businesses that are high revenue, but no no sort of staff. Um, and, and so you've you've had this winding sort of career path and and, and sort of different things that you thought you were going to do, like the air force and what you ended up doing, like sales. What advice would you give to someone who's 18? And again, maybe they didn't really have a clear vision um, like you did or um, they had a vision but they changed their mind or they're really not sure and that that sort of finishing high school point, um, or maybe they're 20 and they did a bit of study, but again, it's not what they want to do. What would you say to, to someone like that right now who's sort of trying to figure out what do they do? Yeah, that's a good one. I actually had this conversation with my brothers not long ago. So I have two brothers, one's 16, one's 17, like they're 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 a bit troubled as well like come from a relatively troubled family um and like we were having this conversation the other day and pretty much my advice to them was like right now you have no risk whatsoever you have no responsibility you have a roof over your head like everything's pretty much given to you at this point why aren't you like just testing things why aren't you just going out there and seeing what's going to be good for you like there's a million different things out there how do you know you're not going to like it like if you want to become a rapper become a rapper but put your 100% into it. If you want to become a barber, become a barber and put your 100% into it. Learn it back to front. If you love it, cool, take it to the next level. If you don't, find something else that you feel like you're going to love and then still pat yourself on the back that you actually know it's a skill. And that's what I I, I, t- I keep telling them. It's like it doesn't really matter what you're doing right now because right now you shouldn't be successful. It doesn't matter if you're successful in the next year. It doesn't matter if you're successful in the next two years. What matters is that you're actually learning something. And that's what I keep driving home to them. It's just like, get out there, learn something. Get out there, just do something. Fail and then pick up, go do the next thing. And what's their response to that? Do they Are they inspired or are they terrified to actually do something <laughs> or they're waiting for permission or, you know, instruction or, or, or how do they respond to that sort of um, that advice? Very inspired. Um, they've actually become more motivated. So one of the things I said to them was like, if you love fitness, uh, wake up with me early in the morning and come with me to the gym. And like, they're fully committed to that. Even before I wake up now, they're messaging me at 4am in the morning saying, Aaron, wake up. We got muscles to build. So they're taking that motivation and I can see like the passion in their eyes when they're doing it as well. And I'm like, you just got to carry the same level of energy into anything else that you do. And I can guarantee if you keep having the same level of energy, you're going to be successful. It's just like, you have to find what you want to do first um, and learn some sort of skill. And so was that quite a, a revelation to them because they're used to being told these subjects are mandatory, you have to do this, you're told <laughs> what to do. They, they're rarely asked, what do you want to do? Or, you know, what do you think of this? It, was that part of that sort of mindset shift they, they had to go through? Yeah, 100%. Like, I feel like with them, like they're, they've, like they're good boys, but they, they do get themselves into a bit of trouble. And I think for them, their whole life, they've always felt trapped like trapped in, in the sense that like I don't have the brains to do particular things and I'm just going to be nothing for the rest of my life. But opening their eyes and showing them what actual opportunity is and what's actually out there has changed their whole perspective on everything. Like previously to them going into doing like one of them's just picked up a, a job as a barber as of last week. Previously to him going to start a barber job would be seen as like not being successful uh, but now he's seeing it as a learning opportunity because it's the next step to what he wants to do. Um, so 
like they've just had like a little shift in their mind, understanding that there is more opportunity out there, but it's just like having some sort of skill and foundation and then carrying it on to the next thing. Like they know now, okay, in the gym, if I push two extra sets, um, I'm going to get bigger muscles. And they, what their, their thing is now, when I go to work, they tell me to sweep this side of the floor, I'm going to sweep the other side as well. So that whole mentality shift has really helped them a lot. Yes, it was a bit like you in your early door-to-door sales job. You thought this is not the destination, but this is a, a important step on the journey to build the skills, the experience, the attitudes towards the, the final destination. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's that's where they're at currently. Like they 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 really love it because I feel like like throughout school, people always say they want to see you do well, but they've never felt like anyone really cared enough. Um, and now that someone sort of understands where they're at and, and giving them an idea that they can do pretty much anything they want, it's just creating a foundation. Um, they, they love it. Like they're like, these boys have been through so much in their life. One of like, they're in and out of juvie all the time, but that, that mindset shift, is just like changed up completely. And you can see it from last year to this year. It's, it's ridiculous. And even the expectations, like you saying, I believe in you, you're capable of this, setting a, a, the space for them to meet those expectations versus, like you said, if Phil didn't really expect anything or care about what they did, um, yeah. you know, they're not going to raise above what they're expected. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I, I think that's a big thing as well, like having someone there that believes in, believes that you can do what you can. And that I think for me also, um, that came from myself. And I feel like I could have done things a lot quicker, a lot better if someone else also ingrained that into me. And that's sort of where they're at now. They're getting that from someone else rather than finding it themselves. Whereas if they were to find it themselves, they could have been waiting another 10 years to try and discover it. And was there someone who believed in you that really stands out in your mind, like in one of your early roles or in a a sporting or another sort of capacity that you sort of remember playing that sort of role for you in your life? Um, I think my dad... Like my dad's always been very supportive um, in in a lot that we've done. And I remember one of the conversations that we had when I was actually going to join the Air Force, he was like to me, you know, Aaron, with your with your attitude and the way that you go about life, you're actually not going to do very well in the Air Force. And I was I took so much offense to it. And I was like, what do you mean? I'll be the best person in the Air Force. I'll do everything I possibly can. He's like, no, because you don't like being told what to do. Like you don't like taking the normal path. And I can tell you right now that the Air Force isn't going to be good for you because you don't like listening to other people, but you will be rich one day. And I remember that and that stuck <laughs> with me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to prove to this guy that I'm going to join the Air Force and it didn't have him and then <laughs> went on to doing my own thing. But that has always been super supportive. Like he, he's always seen that like we have some sort of passion um, and he hasn't ever told us that like you shouldn't do this. Um, he's more so encouraged. And the same with my sister as well. Like she's now graduated a PhD in astrophysicist and has a um, has a position over in America now to to work with NASA and all things like that. And he was the one that sparked her interest in it. Um, <laughs> we had this conversation the other day. He was so scared that it wasn't going to work, but he had to make sure that he kept encouraging her because it's what she wanted to do. Um, and that's the sort of person he is. I feel like he's probably the core thing that kept me driving and also Indy as well like Indy's a workhorse mm. like she's 
ridiculous in everything that she does. And she's always seen more in me. Um, and, and she's always pushed me to do better. Like from the moment that we met, she saw potential in me, um, and helped me choose paths that were going to better my life. And your dad's advice was actually an interesting technique, right? So he's sort of given you honest advice, which is it's very top down chain of command life Mm. in the air force. And he's acknowledged that that's not your strength. So he's giving you sort of advice. But then he's countered that with saying, well, actually, in a different circumstance, and again, maybe a business context, being a bit more disagreeable, self-directed, autonomous can actually be an asset and you can make money and or yeah. even maybe a sales role. So he sort of said, here's some advice so you don't spend 10 years in the wrong direction, but this yeah. is why every strength is also a weakness and vice versa if you actually go over there. And then, like you said, in hindsight, it was probably very, um, very accurate advice. Yeah, it was very accurate. I don't know, like... He, he has a lot of good advice and sometimes I don't even know where he pulls it from, but like it sticks with you. Like a lot of the stuff he says is very wise. Uh, like he's, he's very intelligent as well. And I feel like when he says something to you, you just believe it. And that's how I've always taken my dad's advice. He doesn't, he doesn't just give advice out to anyone. Like he won't just give it to a stranger or try and like indulge in their life. But when he's giving advice to us, it's like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and he's thought about it. Like I said, it's not a cliche. It's a specific yeah. um, piece of advice. Yeah, and exactly. So just to finish, what, what does the next five to 10 years look like for Eyelash Boutique? Do you have a, a medium-term vision, a direction, particular goals or ideas you want to take it to? Yeah, I think the, the next five to 10 years are probably going international as well. Like we're we're in discussions with other education providers um, where we're looking at partnering with them as well to increase what we can offer um, and then like um, taking on some of their students that are wanting to delve more into eyelash extensions specifically. So we're looking at probably partnering with them, um, looking more into like schools and things like that as well, like having an opportunity for people to step into a non-regulated industry and potentially nurturing that entrepreneur side of things in schools also. Um, and then, yeah, like the international adventure venture as well. Like currently we're only Australia. Um, but once we've like, there's a few little hiccups that we have to deal with. And then once we've sorted those out, we're, we're going to branch internationally. Is that from a regulation point of view or is it again, shipping products and supplies, or you've had a handful of international customers, but not a, you know, a focused marketing effort towards other markets? I think it's, it's a, a number of different things. So like shipping handling is obviously a big part of it. Uh, but also just want to make sure that we're like on top of every single number of our business at this point. So like understanding um, how we can improve each step first before we take it internationally um, so that we can have like the best possible outcome. Like we understand what actually drives the customer till its fullest, uh, the conversion rates from that onto like people booking phone calls and then everything along those lines. So that's probably more so what we're doing now because we, we've learned from our experience already that we shouldn't just rush into it. We should take a step back, understand more in depth first and then make the move. That's where, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned sort of talking to schools and registered training providers. How do they understand what you're doing? Do some of them get it, like when you approach them? Um, do others not get it? Did they reach out to you seeing what you were doing? How did those potential sort of collaborations come about? Yeah, we... Um, to our surprise, there's actually bigger companies reaching out to us. So because I, f- I feel like we have a very different angle um, and our offering is probably a lot different to what other providers out there do. 
Um, and we've been approached by a number of um, bigger RTOs that do like more like beauty diplomas and things like that. They don't want to do like non-regulated side of courses, but they like what we do and they want to partner with us. So that for us is be, um, that's like opened up an opportunity because we never really saw it as a potential to grow our business. But now that it's happened, it's something that we're we're trying to like really um, delve into. So, so the original model was sort of business to consumer, direct to consumer, individual, privately funded sort of education. But now there's the opportunity to be like a module in a certificate or a diploma. And again, then you would sort of be reimbursed through the RTO or the government, but like obviously yeah. get a whole new audience and a different level of accreditation. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it's opening up pretty much a whole new door for us that we haven't had. Like it'll be a whole new customer base that we haven't been able to reach. Um, like even people that are like there's a lot of people that come to us as well that don't have the finances to be able to get into what they want, but they can get assistance through like a Parents Next program or um, straight off out of school, they, they don't have the funds again. But if they had like some sort of government funding or if there's an RTO or accreditation behind it, they can actually do it. And, and a lot of the times as well, these people are very passionate about doing eyelash extensions or brows or anything like that. But because there isn't um, many people out there that offer that, um, they have really nowhere to go and they're just left to go into something that they don't really care about. Um, and that's that's probably a big thing that's open opportunity for us. And like the eyelash concept, is sort of, it's in your name, it's in your business. Do, do you see yourself diversifying in the future to add other ancillary or related sort of beauty services or other types of training, leveraging this sort of these types of gaps in, in different sort of um, markets for different um, skills and services? Yeah, hundred percent. Like the, our core product will probably always be eyelash extensions, um, but we've we've definitely branched out to other courses. Like we have brows now. We do teeth whitening courses. Uh, we do lash lift and tints, waxing things like that. Like all the the non regulated side of the courses, but pretty much people funnel in through the lash extensions. It is something that we've always think, thought about, like the name and everything like that being like the the core thing. But um, at this stage, we're probably just going to stick with it. Um, and then we, we, we haven't thought too far into what other products. It's just like perfecting what we have right now. Yeah, it's a bit like 7-Eleven, right? Because their original opening hours were 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. But then <laughs> they couldn't change the name when they became 24-7. So, um, but yeah, it's really interesting that you've sort of expanded it out. Have you seen interest as well from the government or investors or other things? I imagine a, a lot of your audience is female and you're helping a lot of women start businesses. Is that something that's attracted sort of positive media attention, other sort of conversations or interests? Um, not too not too much media attention, to be honest. Um, like we haven't had too much attention from any other places. I think the government is so um, invested in like TAFE and things like that anyway, so they're not really looking too much into like the eyelash extension industry specifically because it is still very niche and eyelash extensions itself is still relatively new. Like it's only been around or really picked up since like social media has like 2012 um, and onwards. Like it wasn't really much of a big thing until social media really blew up. And I think that's, it's probably going to take a bit of time for it to actually be um, taken into like the government side of things or become an accreditation really. Like there are courses that are popping up now, but they're probably not as in depth as what it should be. 
Yeah, and maybe even some of these trends with people running home-based businesses are less visible as well because, again, they're home-based, so they're not even seeing the same data or trends in their own analysis of what careers and what they want to do and work outcomes um, if they're not sort of capturing that data. Um, Do you have any final thoughts, words, comments you'd like to leave the audience with? Um, I think what I said before is like if you are someone out there that is trying to step into becoming an entrepreneur, um, I think... From my own perspective, it's always been fear that stops people from getting into it. But if you do have an opportunity and you see it, um, don't be scared to take the leap because nine times out of 10, you never know. Like if you feel like you have the skills, it's just um, diving into that a little bit more and then making the move. Like for me, if I had done it earlier and just make, made the move, I'd probably be tenfold where I am right now. And that's probably the only advice I'd give to people. Same advice that I give to my brothers. <laughs> I like that, using fear to motivate you to action rather than fear to sort of paralyze you. I think that's excellent words to finish with. Thanks so much, Aaron. Very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.